I think we're going to get started today. Welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar, the colloquium. And before I, I begin, I just want to remind everyone that next week's uh, panel will be climatic narratives and the construction of science's public image, but it will be virtual. So we'll be uh, everyone will be signing on. Uh, we won't be in this room. So just a reminder, we have Leah. Uh, Ceccarelli, professor and director of STS from University of Washington, and David Kirby, the professor of STS from Cal Poly Tech University. And this panel has been organized by our very own AgBioFew students. So uh, we look forward to seeing everybody next week. And I'm also going to ask one of our AgBioFew students, Modesta Abugu, to introduce today's speaker. So thank you. Thanks, Don. Hi everyone, I'm Modesta Abugu, and I'm happy to be introducing our speaker for today, Dr. Jean Goodwin. Public confidence in scientists has been declining over the last couple of years. According to a 2022 Pew Research study, it shows that only about 29% of US adults trust scientists and the, and the public is skeptical on scientists' interpretation of health risks and benefits of GMO foods. This uh, lack of trust is due to many factors such as cultural conditions, sophisticated strategies, and electronic com communication mechanisms that feed on each other to undercut the credibility of scientists. Well, this is where Dr. Jean Goodwin comes in. As a SAS Institute Distinguished Professor of Rhetoric and Technical Communication, Dr. Goodwin focuses on how to bridge this communication gap between scientists and the public. She uses discourse analysis to tease out ways that scientists and communicators can address difficult audiences on topics such as GMOs and climate change, especially in a controversial context. Through her work, she has built bridges between scholarly communities by helping communication grad students find sites for funded research in large science projects, and by organizing a series of conferences, bringing together diverse scholars to examine pressing issues in science communication. Dr. Goodwin received her bachelor's degree in mathematics and her J.D. Julius Doctor degree in law from the University of Chicago. She obtained her PhD in communication arts from the rhetoric program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, creating an interesting marriage between law and classical rhetorics. So today she'll be addressing the question, what is denialism? Ladies and gentlemen, please join me to welcome Dr. Jean Goodwin. Thanks. Can we switch it over to my computer? Ooh, infinite. <laughs> Actually, what is denialism? This is a, something like this is um, going to be an image of what I'm about to present. Well, let me start by thanking um, Modesta for a very generous introduction and for, uh, for the whole colloquium for the opportunity to present this work. Um, I'm, I am selfishly using this colloquium to explore some work in progress that I'm doing and to see if it makes sense uh, when it comes out of my mouth, and then also to see if uh, what kinds of improvements you all can suggest. Ah, okay, great. Um, so 
my, I have a strong uh, interest in studying the discourse that is really microscopically looking at the discourse that happens when uh, people, particularly scientists, are face-to-face -face addressing, uh, addressing an audience member who is pushing back in a major way, who is really uh, very skeptical about what the scientist is saying. So I've had a series of studies where I do this, and I am interested in trying to develop a conception of denialism that will help me do this better um, and that will sort of direct the studies. So I am going to present today a literature review that's actually very much outside my field and is drawing on quantitative social science research as opposed to the qualitative research, but which I think is interesting and will help me set up this kind of study. So that's what, um, uh, that's what this work in progress is that I'm um, dry running on you. I want to start, though, by going way far off and kind of working back to this at the end. And I want to start by asking you all to commit to answers for a certain set of questions. All right. So I'm not going to make you share it. There's no humiliation or embarrassment built in here. But I want you to listen to these questions and seriously think in your mind and commit to a specific answer, maybe even write it down. All right, and there are all questions about uh, the state of public opinion on socio-technical issues. So let's start with this one. What percentage of Americans are seriously anti-vax? That is that they refuse to vaccinate their children. Here's, that's one measure of that. Um, you refuse to, uh, to vaccinate your children by the time you're two years, by the time they're two years old. Okay, so what percentage of Americans refuse all vaccination uh, for kids? zero to two years old. Next question, what percentage of North Carolinians think that climate change is happening? The rest presumably don't know or don't think it's happening. So what's the extent of climate opinion on the science of climate change here in North Carolina? And then last one, um, basically this asks, what percentage of Republicans were really unhappy about the COVID restrictions? Uh, so what percentage of Republicans in October 21, a year ago, which is the only poll that I have access to, um, thought that the COVID restrictions um, were about right and maybe even not restricted enough. So they kind of liked the COVID restrictions. All right, everybody has answers to these. <laughs> Let us look at what the data actually says, starting with the CDC's uh, every other year report on vaccine rates. Unvaccinated in the US, 1%. Um, and that number has been quite stable for as long as they've been measuring it. Here's the vaccination rate for MMR, which is the one that became most politicized due to the Wakefield study. But nevertheless, you see the vaccination rate at two, at two years old is quite high and very stable. Um, who isn't getting vaccinated? Uh, the CDC's analysis suggests that it is uninsured people, poor people, minority people, and rural people which suggests that it's not an ideological resistance to vaccines, but a failure. Um, it's people that are not connected with the healthcare system. Uh, so even this 1% may be an overestimate of serious anti-vax uh, opinion in the United States. All right, how about climate change? At North Carolina always lags a little bit behind the national, nationally, the 
the according to the Yale Climate Change uh, Communication Center, 72%, North Carolina, every single congressional district is above 60%, uh, in, which indicates a substantial, that's a, that's a public opinion you could draw on to make at least mitigation policy for climate. And then finally, COVID policy. Now, here's the Elon poll. And if you're the press, you might go right to this figure and you would say something like, Republicans are four times angrier than uh, Democrats. But kind of more fair way to do it would be to look at these numbers. And this suggests that upwards of 60% of Republicans were kind of okay about the COVID restrictions, masking, vaccination, social distancing, school shutdowns. Um, and in, in fact, close to a third of Republicans thought that maybe we should have gone a little farther with restrictions. There's still a Democrat versus Republican gap here, uh, but it's much, much smaller, right? Than you would have thought if you'd looked um, just at those. All right. If you didn't get all of these numbers correct, and if in some cases your answers were wildly different, don't worry. There's a lot of evidence that we're not very good intuitive social scientists. That's why we value our people that really are social scientists. And in particular, um, you may be suffering from a well-studied and commonly known cognitive bias, which is called false polarization. And that's what I wanna talk about. What is false polarization? Um, false polarization basically means is that we're not very good at assessing public opinion, particularly public opinion of people that are different from us. So if you say that there's a group of people and you ask, um, you ask, oh, what does that group of people think? Um, we tend to produce inaccurate assessments. And in controversial situations, those inaccurate assessments aren't just random, they are biased, they tilt in one consistent direction, and it tilts towards believing that the groups have more extreme positions um, on some controversial issue than they actually do. All right, so what does, uh, let's, go, let's go through, um, I pulled like one standard, uh, one typical false polarization result so that we can get a sense of what false polarization looks like. So this is a study by um, our he looked at um, he had a population representative sample of about 2,500 Californians who were also registered voters. And he asked a bunch of things, including this one. Um, here's a possible controversial issue. And it's, this one is kind of framed very broadly, but it's a typical issue that divides liberals and conservatives in the United States. So on one hand, uh, are you willing to sacrifice jobs in order to have a totally pristine environment? Or on the other hand, you're willing to, um, as long as the economy keeps going well, humans dominate the earth and we can wipe everything out. So where do people fall along this, um, this axis between total environmental protection and total economic protection? And he asked people, where do you put yourself on this scale? Where do you think liberals in California fall on this scale? And where do you think conservatives in California fall on this scale? All right, here's people's actual views. So here's what people report. This is what I think, and then they self-identify as liberal or leaning liberal and conservative and leaning conservative. So not surprisingly, 
um, liberals are willing to sacrifice a little bit of jobs in order to get a clean environment. And uh, conservatives are willing to have a little bit of a dirty environment in order to save some jobs. That's the actual polarization on this issue, at least among this um, Aller sample. But he also asked them then to estimate what groups thought, their own group and others' groups. And here was what the here's the results. So um, the perceived or imagined group averages are significantly different from the actual group averages. And uh, we can look at, we can kind of notice three things. This is the core false polarization result, is that the distance between the views, the real views and the imagined views, the imagined views uh, are significantly, uh, the, the partisan gap is significantly broader. Uh, one review of this literature suggests has uh, suggested that results on just the magnitude of false polarization range from about 50% overshoot to up to three, three times overshoot. Here it looks like it's a, about um, twice, people are estimating there's twice as much polarization than there actually is, a little less than twice as much. So that's the basic basis of false polarization. You think people are farther apart than they actually are. And it goes both for liberals and conservatives. Um, second observation, most of the bias, most of the error in perception comes from perception of the other group, right? So liberals perceive that conservatives are much, they think that conservatives are much more conservative than they actually are. Their own view of themselves is much more accurate. On the other hand, conservatives, think that liberals are much more liberal than they actually are, and their own view is of themselves is slightly more accurate. So most of the bias, most of the inaccuracy comes from uh, misperception of outgroup actual views. This is less studied, um, but I find it kind of amusing for, in various ways is that the average, the average partisan thinks of themselves as extra, as non-average, moderate. It's a kind of Lake Wobegon effect. Um, my party is, a, I'm a moderate member of my party. On average, my party is, is, is to the more extreme than me. Um, this one, this one, this result is not often, it's not studied in every single study, which I think is too bad. And it sometimes doesn't show up. It's certainly the case that the perception of one's own group is more accurate, but this result does come through that I am, <laughs> that the average member of a party is actually not average in their own perception. All right, so uh, that's, that's what it looks like in detail. This kind of work has been done measuring um, extremity of position in a variety of fashions. This one, uh, the, the Aller study just asked people, where do people, what do people think? What are their positions? You can also ask, how much do you think your own party and the other party um, commit to this? Like, are, is this a very strong belief? Is this a moderate belief or just a little bit? Uh, they only believe it some. You can ask people to estimate the, um, the proportion of, the, of one's own and other parties that believe a certain position. And you can actually mix, do really complex study designs and mix these up. And um, people have looked at an incredibly large range of the typical issues that have been dividing our society for 20 years. Um, the, the false polarization also shows up in people's perceptions of how much each party is committed to candidates. 
basically like a Democrat would think that Democrats are more committed to Clinton than they actually were, and that uh, Republicans are more committed to Trump than they actually were. So actual commitment to candidates is is more moderate or more can, more wishy-washy than perceived uh, commitment to candidates. Uh, it goes for value commitments that we tend to perceive the outgroup as disparaging values that we care about, as opposed to merely thinking that they're less important than some other value. And finally, uh, there's a large stream of recent work that suggests that false polarization is particularly acute in, in what could be called second order or meta perceptions. Basically, what a group thinks, the other group thinks of them. So it's like, who? Um, it's it's a projecting social relations, your perception of how the other person is going to be relating to you. Uh, one of the results here is on meta dehumanization. So it's become there's a stream of work that looks at whether partisans they have basic respect for others uh, in their own party and in the other party. And so this is the dehumanization <laughs> thermometer. And you ask people, uh, where, do you, where does your group and your opponent's group fall on this evolutionary ladder? It's pretty discouraging to find out that people think their own parties think that the other people are only about two thirds human, okay? Um, my my suspicion is if you ask people themselves, what do you think about the other party? You would probably get way up by a hundred, right? Because people are not gonna say, I, I don't think the Trump voters are human. Uh, but when you ask um, a Democrat, what the Democrats in general think, you get that Democrats are kind of pessimistic. However, then when you ask, what, do, what does the other side think of you? You get even a greater level of, this is meta dehumanization. So basically everyone thinks that their opponents think that they are not even human, uh, that they're only one, basically one third human. This also comes up for um, mutual perceptions of whether people like each other, uh, mutual perceptions of their commitments to demo basic democratic values. Um, so people are convinced that the other side is already prejudiced against them. All right, so that's false polarization. We perceive people as farther apart than they actually are. A lot of the error is misperceptions of the extremity of, of our the group that we're not in and um, perceived meta perceptions, like met their opinion about us um, seems to be a, have a particularly potent role in this, uh, this mental complex of false polarization. Uh, everybody that's written on this almost has speculated some causes. Uh, it's, this has been a, a focus of research in social psychology, uh, political psychology, uh, various subfields in political science, as well as communication. And the causes that you like to cite tend to be based in which, where you are located disciplinarily. Social psychologists like to put it in various, like um, the way we perceive each other uh, socially. People, political, a lot of political science and communication people are looking at external causes like the way media might cause this and economists and, so, and uh, political scientists who are kind of in the new cognitive turn like to think of it as built into the human brain in some ways. Um, we can talk about these causes. Um, 
I think that the picture is more complex, so I'm less interested, and I'm not impressed by the quality of most of this work either. Um, so this is very preliminary. Instead of thinking about, okay, what causes this? Let's look at what it does. What does it mean that we have this false polarization? Because um, imagine social, we live in imagined social reality, right? The, the way we interact with people, the way that we, what we expect them to do and the way we design our own uh, behavior and communication is based on what we think is out there. So if we have a biased perception of social reality, that's gonna have consequences um, for our other beliefs and for our behaviors. So here are some of the things that the studies have suggested are correlated with um, this uh, an increased perception that your opponent is taking an extreme position. All right, here's, here's one that I think is actually key and is, so it's worth lingering over a little bit, is that it is very easy to interchange between perception that an opponent has an extreme view and a perception that the opponent is a certain type of person and extremist. So that's called attribution. You, you um, take one piece, of, one piece of data about a person and you attribute to them that as their character or as a trait or disposition that they're gonna regularly follow. So uh, perception of extreme position on one issue is connected with beliefs that the uh, person is an intolerant person, is malicious. That is, they're, they're, uh, they're arguing for that position, not because they really believe it, but just because they want to hurt you. That they are driven by ideology or interest as opposed to authentic belief, and that they're unreasonable um, probably subject to propaganda and, and really can't be reasoned with. So perception of extreme position, more, the more you do that, um, it's, it's uh, associated with increased level of negative attributions. Um, not surprising, it's also associated with negative affect, dislike, like if you think that a person has an extreme position, um, you're also more in, willing to uh, actually dislike them or hate or fear them. And finally, um, the perception of extreme position is associated with a kind of peculiar mix of behaviors. On one hand, increased willingness to do political things like vote or donate money, um, but at the same time, an unwillingness to engage with the other side, like you, avoidance. I don't want to have dinner. You ask, a, you, would you date such a person? Would you have dinner with them? Would you? No, 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 no is the answer if you perceive them. So as, uh, as an extreme, as having these extreme beliefs. Um, so we have both higher level of engagement, but then also cutting off ties or withdrawing from engagement with the, with the people perceived as extreme. All right, um, this, I would, this suggests that we can put um, this biased perception of extremism into a kind of larger system, a system with a lot of positive self-reinforcements um, in, in, uh, with the result that many authors have pointed out that false polarization seems to be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that if we start with false polarization, you very quickly will get actual real polarization. So how does that work? Um, many of these factors um, are, reinforce each other. 
for instance, it's there's one study suggested that negative affect is where people start. So if you don't like somebody, you're more willing to perceive that they're extreme. Clearly also, if you perceive them as extreme, that's kind of makes you uncomfortable and you're likely to dislike them. If you dislike them, you're probably not gonna have many contacts with them, you'll withdraw. And if you withdraw, you're never gonna find out what they're really like. And so your perception that they're extreme will, will remain um, you know, unchallenged. So there's a lot of feedback going on here. So once you get this false perception, um, you, it may be reinforced, there's it's kind of self-reinforcing nature. So this starts with Democrats. Um, people's, it's not just that they're self-reinforcing within their own little bubble. Um, people also do things, right? They, based on their perceptions, they go out and they do various kinds of social behavior. And that is not invisible, let's say to Republicans, and so the kind of engagement that is driven by this mindset that, that the other side are a bunch of extremists will be perceived and possibly um, reinforce Republican perceptions of Democrats. For instance, here's, some, here's a random tweet I pulled off this morning by doing a search for Trump and idiot, okay? So here is somebody, very likely a Democrat. You idiots at least realize it will only continue to get worse. Are you realizing lying is not a platform? You're conned by a con man Trump and not even aware of it. So here we see um, a strong attribution, fair amount of negative affect. Um, and you can imagine um, a Republican happens to see this tweet. They are now have even more evidence of meta, right? Meta, um, that, the, that they do hate us, right? You just gave them, uh, the Democrat just gave them that evidence. So it's gonna reinforce that. Of course, Republican, uh, oh yeah. So uh, that's like direct engagement between uh, imagined Democrat and imagined Republican. But of course, in our system of uh, politics and media, um, there's a lot of suggestions that political elites who wanna get out the base will selectively amplify um, their own sides kind of strongest sentiments and statements. Advocates certainly wanna make it look like everybody is behind their positions and traditional and new media both have a tendency to like conflict. And so if the statement's somewhat extreme, it's more likely to get institutionally amplified. Further giving the other side some reinforcement in their idea that they're facing off against a bunch of extremists. And then Republicans of course are in their own universe of self-reinforcing. Uh, perceptions of extremism. So false polarization can in fact be the basis for real polarization. There isn't much evidence that perceptions of the other side's extremity changes my actual ideological beliefs. So they don't, they don't increase actual ideological um, uh, polarization. And actual ideological polarization isn't necessarily bad. It's the basis of the democratic system that we think different things. But negative affect, affective polarization, where we, I, we each hate each other more and more and more based on false beliefs about how uh, extreme they are. This, this is well-documented and is the major source of concern among people that study polarization. The fact that increasing kind of spiral of everyone hating each other, and it could be based in originally false perceptions. 
All right, what is denialism then? Let me go back and in my final moments, apply this to my own work. Um, denialism is one community, a pro-science community way of talking about the other. It is a label that uh, no one goes out and says, I am a denialist. It's a label that's put on um, a perceived other community. This literature suggests that we should at least reflect a little bit about whether that label is accurate, um, whether the, um, how many people and how strongly they actually believe these things that are outside of the mainstream scientific consensus. So if you got any of these wrong, that's grounds for thinking that maybe you have a little bit of biased perception of this outgroup of people that are suspicious of the scientific consensus. Um, the word denialism actually also carries with it uh, this, this whole package that we've seen is associated with false polarization. Notice the word denialist is a label for a certain type of person. So we know you have one data point about the person is that they don't, they think there is no climate change or whatever your favorite scientific belief that they've just denied it to your face. So what, but the very, the word denialist encourages us to go from that one data point, that one belief to a general attribution that they are denialist and that they are against science as a whole. They're a certain type of person. Um, denialist comes from Holocaust denialist, so it has a strong negative connotation already built into it. And the word denialist circulates in the, in the same framework of a kind of general war on science. So it's calling on, when you label people denialists, you're very commonly calling on others on your side to fight them, but then not to actually engage them. It's a, it's a reason for not engaging. If that's what people are thinking, so if, if, if there's a communicator, for instance, a scientist who honestly thinks that they're facing off against a denialist, that's gonna come out in their discourse. And so I'm interested in studying the way that these beliefs about denialists um, inflect the discourse that people are using, even choices about who they call we and who they call they, who, who is a we, who's a you, and who is a they. Um, those, your, your model, your understanding of the, who the other side is, who it is you're talking to is gonna be projected in your discourse. And I'm interested in studying that in part to find if there's better ways of addressing people that are skeptical of you than putting this label on them. Like how can we work our ways out of that? Um, so that's, that is, what is denialism? It is a false perception of the extremity of another side accompanied by negative attributions, negative affect and um, a desire to wage war against them. I think that the um, denialism uh, plays a role in creating this kind of self-reinforcing cycle. So the word denialism or, um, or behaving and talking as if there are denialists is one of the factors that actually creates the kind of partisanship that many people would prefer us to not be in. All right.
that's what I have to say. Thank you for listening and looking forward to pushback. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, you may want to structure this differently since you have talking points you want to include in the discussion, or at least from no, no, these are just suggestions. Um, but normally we'll take questions from the audience and online, and I tend to moderate just because I can see who's yep. going online. Um, so if you're online and would like to ask your question directly to Jean, use the raise your hand function. If you'd like me to read the question, type it in the chat. Um, and so while we let people online. Uh, get engaged there. Does someone in the room want to start? Yep. What inspired this research? Um, the way that scientists were projecting when they were addressing um, even neutral audiences were projecting this class of enemies that are who are anti-science. And there's there's um, if you've looked at the statistics, there's no sense that anyone in America is anti-science. I mean, anti there might be a few people out in the woods who are like off the grid and living an independent life, but pretty much everybody else is very pro-science. They may not, they may think so highly of science that they want to save it from scientists, right? Uh, but that's not being anti-science. That's actually worshiping science maybe even a little bit too much. So I became interested in whether um, it's very visible in discourse of some scientists. And I was, I, I'm interested in a theoretical frame that will help me unpack it and also start to notice some scientists who do not proceed in that way, but address, or, address an audience that's quite hostile and disagreeing with them, but nevertheless, in a way that doesn't you know, that doesn't attribute to denialism to them, um, but allows them to just be like a human that's made a mistake. Okay, um, Allison Davini, uh, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, thank you. Um, you had mentioned that there might be other ways to address denialism. So I was wondering if you've hypothesized or explored what some of those other ways might be. Um, so what do you mean by addressing denialism? Um, you said that, um, you know, you see that when scientists are facing off with a denialist, the first thing they do is try to, you know, do exactly what you were showing in this. They have that negative effect, negative attribution. So what are some other ways that we can address people who may already be skeptical of what we're saying that doesn't follow that pathway? Okay, so I would say... One first thing to do uh, would be to do some, that communicators should do some self-debiasing. That is, if you are addressing an audience and you think that there's some disagreement, uh, do some, do start by figuring out, trying to get some statistics on the actual state of disagreement so that you actually don't believe that you're facing a hostile audience anymore because you probably aren't. You're, you might be facing a few hostile individuals. So that's, um, this, to some extent, my work is a call more for reflection of, of speakers rather than empowering speakers to fight something that may not be there. Do you want to follow up? No, I think that's a great answer. Thank you. 
Yeah, Majesta. Yeah, so in some of the experiences I've seen, especially when you show the picture of Kevin Folter, yeah. um, we've seen some cases where science is in the process of trying to stay away from being self-biased. They tend to reaffirm the position of the, of the opposite party. How, and in that in that way, they tend to communicate the wrong information to an audience because they also don't want to take the position of the other person. So how do we get a middle ground between reducing that bias and also communicating your message clearly? Okay, give me a more specific example so I'm sure I know what you mean. So we talk about an example, does GMOs cause cancer? And you want to connect to your audience, like you want to affirm what they are saying. I understand your interest or your concern about GMOs causing cancer. But sometimes the message goes in a way where you reaffirm that GMO probably causes cancer when there is no yes or no answer to that. Um, why is that bad? If you're reviewing the science and the science is in the state of uncertainty and ambiguity. Because it sends the wrong information to the audience, like the audience will go home thinking, okay, so this scientist does not really know whether or not GMO causes cancer. Do, does he know? <laughs> <laughs> so what should, how should scientists communicate in situations of uncertainty? I don't know, I'm trying to know. Um, all right, so that's actually a separate talk, but there's quite a lot of evidence that people are pretty good at reasoning under uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, ordinary life is filled with a lot of uncertainties and we manage, um, we manage to get through it. Um, and that, uh, so there's a series of studies that suggest that people actually want to know about the uncertainties. They'll trust you more if you reveal uncertainties and that they are capable of dealing with the uncertainties if provided. So if, yeah, if there's, I'm not sure that the link between GMO and cancer is uncertain, but if let's say some, something about GMOs is uncertain, you should totally present that, shouldn't you? Yeah. Now, if you're an advocate, maybe not. If you're trying to advocate for GMOs, but that's a, that's a- Different context. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Eli has his hand raised if you'd like to unmute yourself. Hi. Um, hey, Eli. Hello. So um, uh, a word that I often see paired um, with denial in this context is disinterest. Um, and you know, your, your point about uh, perceiving your audience correctly is very well taken. Um, I wonder about the disinterest side of that. Um, you know, it, are the data you're relying on to make this point sort of self-selected for people who are willing to engage um, and to bandwagon on people just asking you for advice? Um, what are your thoughts on uh, working with disinterest in science communication? Um, so if you assume that your audience is not interested in what you have to say, my sense is that overall, you're more likely, that's more likely to be an accurate perception. <laughs> um, one of the ways that we overestimate the extremity of perception is by thinking that other people even care about these issues. Oh, we're up, <laughs> we're back in the infinite reflection land. Um, so um, in the GMO space, for instance, um, lack of interest. I mean, people will give you their opinions about GMOs and 
and the effects of GMOs, but the 80% um, of them don't care much at all. So you wonder that if you want to have a mental model of who you're, if you're addressing a mass public and you want to think, ah, what, who are they? If you say, ah, they're not really interested in what I have to say. That is actually likely to be a very accurate perception. Um, they're not outraged. They don't have, they may have some false beliefs, but they've never really thought about them. Um, well, if you want to address disinterested people, I'm going to send you to the STEM education literature because um, required people forced, people taking required science classes are very commonly disinterested in them. And a lot of STEM, a lot of excellent STEM education, um, the studies of which are taking place in this building that I'm giving this talk in, um, have a lot of methods for, for engaging people's interests. You, you can presume that people are curious. And so you try to come up with a puzzle in their, within their own ordinary understanding, something that doesn't fit. They have some preconceptions about how the science works. You come up with some evidence that destabilizes that, arouse their curiosity, help them um, figure out what the right answer is. Those would be methods for kind of very broadly methods for addressing uh, disinterest. It's, but you're right, it's that, that would, if there's a central problem with science communication or communication in general, it is gonna probably be uh, um, addressing people that really don't care about what you're talking about and trying to earn their attention, not addressing uh, some, some imagined very hostile audience. <laughs> okay. Um, so I can imagine that the sort of self-perpetuating cycle of this is difficult to get out of um, in the sense that um, you might be doing some work to, to de-bias yourself and maybe you go talk to a hundred people, um, but then one person in the audience, like you said, like a particular person. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious what you think about this sort of maybe cognitive or just other things that can be done um, to sort of de-bias or to kind of work through that sense of picking and choosing, you know, maybe a particular, a couple of <laughs> individuals to represent a large amount? What can people do to, to kind of work through that on, in their own head? So is it, is it what can scientists do to work through their own biases? Yeah. It's a or question of like how, how do we de-bias? Ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, talking to a lot of people would be good. Like you find, a, you find somebody who'd usually be labeled a denialist, sit down and try to figure it out what they think, or read the social science, the qualitative social science literature. Um, in the area of the anti-vax is what's been most studied, I think. And it's the, there's a variety of studies and they all kind of show the same thing is that people who have vaccine skepticism, vaccine hesitancy, it's usually, it's not anti-science and it's not even about vaccines. It's about very complex personal notions of health and their own responsibility for being healthy and the kinds of designing a life even within our contemporary capitalist industrialist system where they can be um, holistically healthy. So they're investing a lot in a very positive vision of a way to live. Now that, that also leads them in directions that I would consider wacky in several ways, 
but on, the, on their own terms, um, what they're saying makes sense. And so vaccines ends up to be a relatively minor uh, part of their concerns. But then when vaccines are forced upon them, then everything, everybody gets mad and it blows up and it becomes the focus of a controversy. So um, to some extent, maybe qualitative social science research becomes the best method of debiasing because it allows us to listen to other people's points of view from their own side and not to start with some kind of label. The, the public opinion surveys tend to do a fairly bad job. Here is, uh, I will share, here's the, here's GM's GMO surveys, okay? So this is the 2018 Pew, which is a good survey, but they did a really bad job trying to figure out, you know, trying to give us a rich picture of what people think. If you just look at the top line result, you would say half of US adults are GM denialists. They, they think that GM, GM food causes uh, uh, negative health effects. But then you look in more detail and you see that 25% of people wanted to say they didn't know, <laughs> they, didn't have, they weren't sure, but the survey, the Pew doesn't let them do that. They, they force, they come back at them and say, well, if you have to say, where do you put yourself? So already people are not allowed to be confused in this survey. Um, of the half of people, roughly half that say that they don't like GMOs, only about 18% of those, about 49% um, really care. That means the other ones, yeah, sure. They, who knows why they said it, but they're not really invested. Um, and of the people that care a lot, they actually have some surprising beliefs about the positive impacts of GMOs. So they're not just like GMO total denialists. Now, this is just what I meant to squeeze out of the Pew survey. It wasn't trying to, it wasn't trying to, it actually was quite hard to get this information out of the Pew survey. Even Pew is more interested in this 50-50 big fight um, top line, as opposed to really trying to investigate um, what, what are the concerns of these people really that are coming out as um, what seems to be a fact, a scientifically inadequate statement that they cause health impacts. So what we need is some qualitative research that goes in and really talks to GM skeptics, the people that are in the 50% and see how that fits into their worldview, what's driving it. And usually you'll find, if nothing else, you'll satisfy your curiosity. Sometimes you will find some things that are just kind of horrific or that you personally can't swallow. I think I've told you this story before. I was, I was trapped in an Uber with uh, a driver who ended up to be a gravity denialist. The, co the conversation started with, with uh, COVID vaccine denial. And by the end, it was um, that things fall because they're heavy and they, they rise if they're light and there's a glass dome on top. And he didn't tell me what's on the other side of the glass dome because luckily I, had, I we reached my destination. <laughs> so, I mean, there are people with seriously messed up views and he told me mathematics was really just um, a theory, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I would, I would be comfortable labeling him a denialist, but that was, at least I had a 30 minute conversation with him to, to base my assessment on. Um, that's, rel that's very, very rare. Most people have much more complex and more interesting views. So many questions, I'm not sure that I can articulate one all that well. Like I would love to hear your thoughts maybe another time on 
uh, the revelation that Democrats were propping up extremist candidates, paying for ads, given what you said, how that actually does that's, lead to that's, polarization. And that's institute. Get out your own base by making the other side look even more kooky than they are. Like amplify the, um, in social media, there's a new term called nut picking, where you go and you find the, the like the most idiotic represent voice from the side you oppose and you amplify it as much as possible to show how stupid they all are. So that's just a monetary method of nut picking. Not, it's not, it doesn't help the, doesn't support the healthiness of our democratic system. Yeah. Um, but if you go back to, I think it was your first slide that on it. Uh, and it also talked about contradiction. Oh, way back at the beginning. Way back at the beginning. And yes. Yep. So if what's going on in this contradiction space is not just denialism, what do you think is the motivation behind the, the non-scientist in that conversation? Um, I, I suspect that there's lots of projection going on on both sides. And so, for instance, in the study I did of Kevin Folta, it was pretty clear um, that one of the people that was seriously pushing back against him kind of felt herself to be the beleaguered minority repressed by large institutional forces, big ag, big ag research, that, and they were steamrolling normal humans like her. And um, so a sense of not being listened to, being excluded, uh, your views are not respected, you have to do all your own research um, on your own. So that's a that I would say is probably also a false perception. She was projecting on Kevin Folta this, this implication in all of these really, really large system. And of course you'd push back if you're being attacked and victimized by all these large systems. So that's the self-reinforcing nature is that both sides are doing a lot of projecting onto the other side and feeling themselves as vulnerable and victimized. Um, my point would be that uh, you can't, you cannot change another person. You can change yourself. So that the first place to start is just to ask, what am I doing that brings that out? How can I act so as not to spark this perception, you know, this perception that I'm attacking? And if you start, if you start by the idea that you want to it to wage the war against for science, you're, you're not likely to, to project the right welcoming um, uh, persona for yourself and uh, role for your audience. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, it feels like very important time for your work. Well, that's the false polarization. A lot of people have been working on it for precisely that reason. Yeah. Sorry, Zach. Carl online has had his hand up for a while. Okay. Carl, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? And then we'll go to Zach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Dr. Goodwin, for a very interesting presentation. Um, it's getting me thinking a lot. Uh, one, one question that occurs to me is along the lines of um, like debiasing oneself. How do you debias your colleagues? This is an issue that I've had a lot of trouble with. 
um, in, including, um, you know, the name of Kevin Folta has come up, um, who has been rather aggressive um, with people. But there's a lot of other people who have uh, tried to put the that extreme perception of those who disagree with them and label them as denialists. And, and I've had a lot of trouble over the years trying to get people to tone it down because they want they seem like they want to paint those who disagree with them in a very negative light. Um, how, what advice do you have on strategies for people who agree with you trying to convince them to, to be less uh, biased against those who you may both disagree with? Yeah, and that's, I think, working within your own community is probably the first place to start, as opposed to trying to change the other guys, changing yourself and changing your own community. Um, so some of the false polarization studies have also had um, kind of sidearms that try debiasing, and the suggestion is that it's actually pretty easy to debias, that uh, sharing actual information about the composition of public opinion is enough. That's, I'm not sure I totally believe those results. Um, it's certainly debiasing, like when people have deeply false beliefs about the way the world works, providing them correct information does not work. It, you have to do a lot more. Um, but apparently our models of social reality are a little bit more flexible. So you just show them, this is the polls. People don't hate you as much as you're saying um, can be enough to at least get them thinking and, and tone people down. Uh, also, just continuing to speak out. So one of the other behavioral effects of false polarization is since most people think of themselves as more moderate than their community, um, most people, a lot of people report self-silencing. So um, everybody else in the community is really committed to this. I feel complex. I better just not say anything because otherwise my, my, my best friends, my own community is gonna, uh, is gonna dislike me or spurn me or give me a hard time. So not, don't self-silence, don't go in that direction. Recognize that if you have a moderate opinion, this research suggests that it's at least possible that no matter whether you think everybody else is more extreme than you, you actually are average. And that there are a lot of other people that have the same kind of moderate complex opinions about the state of the world. So speak out, find some statistics. I mean, uh, I just tried to debias you guys. So with, by providing some <laughs> information, maybe it'll work when you do it. Okay, thanks. Yeah, actually the um, the uh, self-silencing is real. It is a yeah. thing. I agree with you on that. And um, I've noticed that sometimes when people try to uh, point out the nuance in the other side, they get accused of trying to help the enemy in, in some way. It's uh, it's a difficult path, but thank you. I think that, that the, um, the label of when information starts getting repressed because it might, quote, help the other side, that's a sign of overpolarization. Um, <laughs> it's a sign that people are thinking as advocates, not really as people that are trying to contribute useful information to a public debate. Thanks. Oh, I also want to say I appreciate you delineating between advocates and those who are like evenly weighing things. A very influential book I read a long time ago was a, 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 it was a, a book on uh, one-sided arguments, uh, dialectical analysis of bias. It was very helpful in analyzing where somebody comes from and uh, uh, in thinking about what kind of, a, uh, I guess, speaker somebody is on a topic or something. Cool. <laughs> yeah.
Um, thanks, that was great. Uh, I just, I guess, it seems like the most obvious intervention based on what you presented for kind of the fixing this denialism problem or this like problem that you described. The quote denial yeah, is a problem, exactly. yeah. The problem that you described is uh, to basically have partisan divert diversity on the, like if you're talking about science communication to the public and having the actual team, teams of communicators be partisan, have partisan diversity. Um, I don't know what are your thoughts on like just explicitly targeting that and trying to compose the team to have those views. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you try to do that, I mean, it's happened most in the climate area that there's there, there have been repeated attempts to build Republican coalitions behind Republic. I mean, people won't agree with the policies because they're going to be Republican policies based in certain views about how the world works. Um, but they are they're not climate denialists, right? They're built on the sense that, yeah, Republicans care. I think that um, in the climate area, we passed a kind of watershed uh, during Trump's administration and we didn't really notice. And that climate denialism is no longer in any way a serious force. There's plenty of disputes about policy disputes about what needs to be done, but the basic scientific uh, basis for this is, is um, not being, is not an issue that advocates are any longer pressing. So let's make sure that that fact <laughs> becomes very conspicuous to everyone. So the Democrats know that Republicans, that there's plenty of Republicans that think that climate change is happening. Republicans know that there's plenty. Of, and so, and that will de-bias and allow people to have a better assessment of the actual way of, of the political landscape. So, yeah, that, that can be difficult though, because um, scientists are not, I mean, if we're talking about scientists, science communicators, scientists are not evenly distributed across the political spectrum. So maybe that's another area for self-reflection within um, science departments. I think this is a good place to end it because we also need to remind everyone that next week we will be virtual only. So um, don't come to Poe, just join us online on Zoom and we'll have the panel that our students have organized, which I think is going to be very interesting. And with that, help me thank Jean for a really interesting talk. Thank you.